Welcome to Whores Talk Whore. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello and welcome to Whores Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. This is our February Tidbits of Terror episode. Tidbits of Terror, Terror, Tidbits, Tidbits of Terror, Terror, Tidbits, rawr, 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 rawr. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee Carrie Weeder for our Tidbits of Terror theme song. I do a little <laughs> dance when, when it plays. In case you missed our uh, most recent episode with Carrie, we actually did a horrific experiment episode with her where we made her watch five horror movies that she has never seen before, five classic horror movies, Um, and it was a great interview with her, so go and check that out, Um, but this is Tidbits of Terror, and on this episode, we are going to be talking about some new Mike Flanagan news. Uh, we also celebrate Women in Horror Month and give shout-outs to some of our favorite women in the horror industry. Uh, we are also going to be discussing a new true crime book that has been compared to the works of Anne Rule, so you're going to want to add that to your must-read list, and we have much, much more. Uh, So let's get started with some Mike Flanagan news. Yeah. All right. So this info was sent to us initially by one of our listeners and friend of the show, Jim L. What's up, Jim? What's up, Jim? Uh, I'm sure most of you have heard this news by now. Um, It's not... You know, this came out a while ago that there's going to be a new Netflix series coming out from Mike Flanagan sometime in the future, we don't know when, but it's going to be titled The Midnight Club, and it's based off of Christopher Pike's 1994 novel of the same name. And the series is going to be co-written by Flanagan and Leah Fong. Fong was one of the writers and producers on The Haunting of Bly Manor. Flanagan is also set to direct the first two episodes of the 10-episode series, according to a Variety article. But I would assume he would direct all 10 episodes, right? Um, maybe not. He didn't direct all of Bly Manor. He had, I mean, he works with a team, so he probably oversees when he's not directing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, who knows? Um, that that was all that they said as of now. He might direct more than just the first two episodes, but he is going to be the executive producer or one of the executive producers on the series as well. I mean, he wears many, many hats um, and he's going to be uh, executive producing it along with Trevor Macy. Macy has been a producer or executive producer on basically everything Mike Flanagan has ever made. <laughs> um, so yeah, they are long time collaborators. Flanagan did just reveal the cast for the Midnight Club, though, on a tweet from February 1st, which, yes, now, by the time this episode is airing, <laughs> that was quite a while ago. Um, so I'm sure everyone listening to this has heard this news, but it's not like we're not going to discuss new Mike Flanagan news on our <laughs> right. show. So, um, yeah, this is probably not a surprise to most of you, but... Flanagan said, quote, I began brainstorming an adaptation of The Midnight Club as a teenager, so this is a dream come true. It's an honor to introduce a new generation of young horror fans to the world of Christopher Pike. 
Oh, and for you fellow Pike fans out there, the article is correct. We will be incorporating a lot of his books into the series. So whatever your favorite Pike book is, there's a chance it'll be part of the show. So the book tells the story of Rotterdam Home, which is a hospice for terminally ill teenagers, where a group of patients gathers together at midnight to share scary stories. They eventually make a pact that whichever of them dies first will contact the others from beyond the grave. Flanagan announced that the Midnight Club is made up of, and apologies in advance if I mispronounce any of these actors or actresses' names, um, I'm sure you're all fantastic performers, <laughs> which is why Mike Flanagan cast you, but I, you're unknown to me as of uh, right now, um, so... I might fuck up your name, um, but it's going to be starring uh, Adia or Adia. So sorry, uh, William Chris Sumter, Igby Rigney, Ruth Cod, Aya Furukawa, Anara Shepard, and Sorian Sapkota. And joining them in supporting roles, some more familiar faces such as Zach Guilford, Samantha Sloyan, and Matt Bedell. Flanagan went on to say, quote, and finally anchoring the show as the enigmatic doctor who runs this hospice for young adults, I'm honored to welcome Heather Langenkamp. Woo! Woo woo! To horror fans like myself, Heather is royalty, absolutely, and I'm so excited to work with her. I cannot wait to embark on yet another adventure with my intrepid partner in crime and television, Trevor Macy, as well as the fantastic crew we've been cultivating. More to come as we get closer to shooting, end quote. So the show is currently in pre-production. I'm hoping it'll be released sometime in 2022. I actually just finished reading the book. Um, I bought it last summer when I first heard that he was going to be making this into a series. And I have to say that in the book, they don't really tell scary stories, um, like at least not traditional scary stories. So I'm wondering if in the TV series that the stories are going to be like a little scarier than in the actual book. But if Flanagan is incorporating some of Christopher Pike's other books into the series, my guess is that's how he's going to do it. The other books will become the stories that the teens tell each other. Um, You know, like I remember reading Slumber Party and Chain Letter when I was younger, and I remember those being a lot scarier than The Midnight Club was. Yeah, I don't know. Did you read Christopher Pike growing up, Mindy? I did, and I'm trying to think of which... I had a book that was like a favorite of mine that I don't think I have around anymore, but I can't remember the title of it. I mean, I was like kind of young, so it's been a few years. (laughs) But I'm excited about this regardless. Yeah, I think I still have my books in my storage locker way out like an hour away so um I might have to drive out there this summer and dig for those and reread some of those but do you remember and Spencer I'm curious if you had this when you were growing up but Mindy you remember like in grammar school we would have the bookmobile oh yeah and that was like my favorite two days of the year where this company would come and they would set up basically like a book fair in the front hallway of our school. And of course 
I was so excited because of all of the like scary storybooks, like scary stories to tell in the dark and Christopher Pike and R.L. Stein and like getting all the new books that came out that year. Did you guys have anything like that? Yes. You did. Okay. So we weren't special. <laughs> yeah, oh, that wow. was actually one of my fond memories of back in the day. Uh, yeah, getting to like, you get like a, a uh, some sort of like little catalog or pamphlet that like listed all the books. And yeah, I definitely had some fond memories of picking which ones I want. I did not choose the scary ones because I was a baby. But uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I got a lot of, I remember like I would get like Heathcliff, like the comic or other comic books. Oh yeah, books like and, Garfield comics. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, I just remember, and also it was great because you got to get out of class for like a half hour and then each class would go down like at their own scheduled time, but I would always take much longer. So like the rest of the class would go back and I'd be like, I'm still looking. And of course the teacher's not gonna be like, no, stop looking at books you wanna read, you know? (laughs) That is like basically one of my highlights of school because I pretty much hated school. (laughs) I think that is where I got any Christopher Pike books I had and my scary story books for sure. Absolutely. That's like, yeah, that's where I bought all of those. All right. Well, that's exciting. That is exciting. Hopefully we don't have to wait too long for that. Yeah. All right, Mindy. Well, you titled this next section, Suck a Dick, Dumb Shits. So what are you going to be talking about? Yeah, I'm going to call this a feel-good update. Um, It's about yet another male celebrity recently outed as a piece of shit, abusive dirtbag asshole. Which I feel like we've been hearing about so many lately and with such fucked up stories, it's getting kind of hard to keep track. But uh, the piece of shit abuser this story is about is named Brian Warner. If that doesn't ring a bell, you may know him instead as Marilyn Manson, dickbag extraordinaire Esquire. A quick backstory for anyone who hasn't heard by now. Actress and all-around awesome person Evan Rachel Wood named Manson as an abuser in a recent Instagram post saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, that she'd been groomed and brainwashed by Manson since she was a teen and is sick of living in fear of retaliation or blackmail. Wood stated, quote, I am here to expose this dangerous man and call out the many industries that have enabled him before he ruins any more lives. I stand with the many victims who will no longer be silent, unquote. Uh, Manson responded with a lame ass denial. But since Wood's post, several other victims have come forward. A recent article from Billboard.com reports Manson has... A 25-year history of abuse allegations. 25 fucking years. I want to say I'm shocked by that, but like, I'm not. Yeah, right. I'm not at all. It's fucking disgusting that people can get away with this type of shit for so many years because of money and power. Yeah. But it's completely just the norm, you know? Totally. Yeah. Brian Warner. Also, quick side note. Much love to Evan Rachel Wood. I adore her like a ton, but I fucking love that she used his real name in her post. I think that's so (laughs) funny. Well played, Evan. Anyway, despite, again, I'll say it again, 25 years of abuse allegations, Manson was able to make a career in Hollywood, surprise, uh, and a fairly decent one at that. Um, sadly, as Sharon kind of just said, this is kind of the norm for celebrity abusers. They typically get a free pass in Hollywood. 
but not this time, motherfuckers. Uh, Manson actually got fired by a cryptkeeper corpse and the god Odin himself, no less. Bet he didn't see that shit coming. According to Bloody Disgusting, Manson was meant to star in an episode of Shudder's anthology series, Creepshow. Manson's segment in the episode appears to have already been filmed but Shutter reps confirmed that they've already pulled Manson's segment from the episode and will replace it with a different piece. Fuck yes. Likewise, Cable Channel stars, or stars as I pronounce it, <laughs> um, has, re- has removed Manson from their show American Gods. Manson was cast... Uh, as a guest star for two episodes in the the show's third season. The first episode, I think, already aired, at least by the time you guys hear this. Uh, His second appearance was rumored to play a significant part in the episode's overall plot, but showrunners are reworking the episode so as to remove Manson entirely. And as luck would have it, the air date for Manson's second episode was postponed due to the Super Bowl, giving showrunners extra time for re-edits. Deadline.com also reports that Manson's agency, CAA, is considering cutting ties and his music label, Loma Vista Records, to quote Deadline directly, quote, drop the singer like a rock, unquote, amid the allegations. So, okay, look, I'm not the kind of person who revels in the bad luck or failures of others. It's bad karma. And speaking from experience, the universe can change the luck of any one of us from awesome to shitsville in a matter of seconds. That said, fuck Marilyn Manson and fuck the institutions that enable this kind of behavior without consequence. And a very special fuck you goes out to the execs over at CAA, the agency that represents Manson and is currently, quote, considering cutting ties, unquote, with him. At this point, I say just keep them, really. Uh, Fun fact, CAA already stood by Manson a few years ago when he was investigated by the LAPD for, quote, unspecified sex crimes that supposedly occurred as far back as 2011, unquote. But as shitty as all that is, for once, I am calling this a win. The fact that both shows, which are fairly big shows and have big followings, have already been filmed, yet both are willing to go back and rework Manson's would-be appearances in light of these allegations is both awesome and kind of depressing. It's awesome that it's happening at all, but depressing because it rarely happens in Hollywood. And yes, I'm sure company image ratings and all that shit played into it. But for now, let's just like enjoy this moment. I'd like to send a very special fuck yes to Evan Rachel Wood and all of the other survivors who have come forward to speak out against Manson, but also other survivors of abuse everywhere. Know that you guys are badasses, each and every one of you. You are strong and brave and finding the strength to speak out is really crazily heroic odd footnote about an unexpected accuser um i found out that Corey fellman was actually someone who has also accused manson of abuse in the past so this guy is all over the place he needs to be done and it's just nice to hear that he got canceled for once one win for the good guys i'm gonna call this i'll leave you with this one final thought In all of Hollywood, where it seems like no one has the balls to cancel abusers as long as they boost ratings, there is one man, well, a corpse really, who probably doesn't even have testicles. 
but clearly has balls big enough to tell Manson to go screw. So way to be awesome, Crypt Creep. We like you. Wow. Well said on everything. <laughs> everything you just said, Mindy. 100% agree. And I'm I'm not a fan of cancel culture, except in situations where you've been sexually abusing people. It doesn't even matter like how long this has been going on. 25 years is absolutely fucking ridiculous. Totally. But like... Yeah, if if you have sexually abused someone, raped someone, like whatever, fuck you, can't can- cancel you, like you're out. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't agree with the whole like you had like one politically incorrect tweet or told one politically incorrect joke like 20 years ago that has now resurfaced. Like, let's just totally like annihilate you and your career. I'm, I'm not a- about that. You know, right. people fuck up, they make mistakes. Hopefully, they learn and grow from it. And evolve. Um, you know, we all make mistakes and we've all said and done things in the past that we shouldn't have. Right. It's just, you know, not everyone lived in a time where we were able to document all of our ridiculous or horrible thoughts on social media. <laughs> uh, so a lot of us got a free pass, but totally fuck Marilyn Manson. I've never really liked him. So I don't, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like I I said, I know this news is shocking, I'm sure to hear, (laughs) but it's just nice for once to hear. I'm chalking this up as to like one win for the good guys, at least. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to celebrating women in horror because it is Women in Horror Month. This February marks the 12th anniversary of Women in Horror Month, and the statement comes from womeninhorrormonth.com or uh, WIHM.com. So, Women in Horror Month is an international grassroots initiative which encourages supporters to learn about and showcase the underrepresented work of women in the horror industries, whether they are on the screen, behind the scenes, or contributing in other various artistic ways. It is clear that women love, appreciate, and contribute to the horror genre. In honor of Women in Horror Month, we decided to talk about some of our favorite women in horror and their contributions and why we love them. Mindy, who is your first woman in horror? (laughs) My first woman (laughs) is Mary Heron. Just as a refresher, in case you don't recognize that name, she directed a little classic called American Psycho. Um, So some fun facts about her. When Mary Heron read American Psycho, uh, written by uh, Brett Easton Elson, Brett Easton Ellis, God, I can't talk. Her reaction to the novel was, quote, oh, this is funny. I mean, this is really (laughs) funny. This is very dark satire, unquote. Mary uh, insisted on writing the screenplay with her writing partner, Guinevere Turner, to ensure that the subtleties of the novel's commentary and comedy were done just right. Aspects critics of the novel seem to have overlooked or missed entirely. Get ready to feel old, everybody. 20 years later, um, (laughs) American Psycho remains a surreal, brilliant, and sadly all-too-relevant classic. Uh, Christian Bale was Heron's first choice to play lead Patrick Bateman. Clearly, her instincts were right on, as the duo turned out to be collaborative dynamos, actually. In honor of the film's 20th anniversary in the year 2020, here are some interesting facts about the film's creation. 
uh, Heron was actually fired from the film early on. And I remember hearing this and I'm so glad this never happened. Leo DiCaprio expressed interest in playing Bateman and having just reached major celeb status after the success of some little boat movie that he was in. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh he he reached out to the studio and to this Heron said basically fuck no um i'm assuming she said that anyway though that's my presumption uh heron did say that she didn't feel leo was right for the role which i would agree i uh, also per- agree and, <laughs> and also i have to say that leo dicaprio will always be luke from growing pains to me <laughs> I can I can never not separate him from Luke from Growing Pains. Well, by the time American Psycho was in production, uh, one of the main reasons Heron didn't feel he was right was because of his newly acquired Titanic celeb status. Ha <laughs> ha. Get it? I see um, what you did there. <laughs> yeah. Right. But he also had a rather large teenage girl fan base. Uh, undeterred, DiCaprio got Oliver fucking Stone involved to direct. But fortunately for all of us, the project fell apart and Heron was rehired, enabling her to cast Christian Bale. Uh, yeah, right. Speaking of which, here's a short but awesome excerpt from her interview with the AV Club, which I highly me- recommend reading the whole thing. We'll obviously put the link in the show notes. AV Club uh, had asked her, you mentioned the Paul Allen murder scene. The way that it's staged is so fun. Is there anything in particular you remember about shooting about it? And Mary Heron said, and just for anybody who needs a refresher, this is the Jared Leto death scene. Um, Mary Heron said, when we were rehearsing the scene, I remember Christian saying to me, quote, I think I want a moonwalk, unquote. And then when he did it, I just fell off my chair laughing. I thought it was so funny and absurd. So that was something that he came up with to walk out like that. It's awesome. Uh, Despite her role as director and having earned the complete trust and respect of actor Christian Bale, the now infamous chainsaw scene almost didn't happen, at least the way we see it. Uh, The main critique, even coming from like Heron's like director of photography and everything, uh, the main critique of her vision was that it wouldn't look realistic. Yeah, no shit. That's like the whole fucking point. Uh, But since she is a fucking boss, Heron would not back down. And 20 years later, I literally just referred to the scene as infamous as what we see in the film. The hall chase, the staircase and the utter absurdity of it all is just brilliant and exactly how Heron wanted it. So thanks for this masterpiece and for your determination, Mary Heron. Oliver Stone can suck it. (laughs) Here's one last little treat for y'all. I was, well, it was for me anyway, wondering if the nudity in the film was awkward on set. I was, but Heron said it certainly wasn't. Basically, Christian Bale just kind of hung out nude in between takes. Quote, Christian was very casually hanging around the monitor, looking at it, wearing just his sock covered in blood. (laughs) I have a photograph somewhere, a Polaroid somebody took. But we were all pretty relaxed about that stuff on set, unquote. You're welcome, everybody. <laughs> wow. I kind of want to see that poor. A hundred percent. Yep. Okay, Sharon, who are you going to talk about? The first person you're going to talk about, at least. All right. So we're going to be, I'm talking about 
Jennifer Lynch, who is one of my favorite directors, writers, and artists. She has written and directed the films Boxing Helena, Surveillance, and Chained. And if you have not seen any of those movies and you're a horror fan, please do yourself a favor and watch them immediately. She masterfully blends together visual beauty with a complete uncomfortableness and tenseness in her films that make them very, very memorable. And they'll stick with you way after the movie is over. But it's also just such a treat to watch because they're just beautiful to look at. And I personally have always felt that there was a beauty in the darker sides of life. And I think she captures this perfectly in her films. And like I said, they'll they'll just stick with you long after you've watched the film. And I, I think that's a true sign of of great filmmaking when you cannot get a movie out of your head. Mm -hmm. Um, She's also directed episodes on a ton of TV shows, including The Walking Dead, American Horror Story, 911, and Ratched, as well as many, many others. And she wrote the book, The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, which came out in 1990, which gave a depth and a breadth to the iconic character, Laura Palmer, from... My favorite TV show ever, Twin Peaks. I mean, that book is just so beautifully written and heartfelt and emotional. And I read that book later in life because I was very young when the TV show came out. And even Mm -hmm. though I was allowed to watch it uh, with my mom and loved it, I was too young to read the book. And I remember being in like a Kmart or somewhere. Walden Books at Chicago Ridge Mall. I was, I think, at a Kmart, but I remember my mom was like shopping and I would always go look at like the books and magazines while my mom would do all the shopping. And I saw The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer and was like, oh, you know, I love this show. And I picked it up and I think I opened to the page where she was, where Laura was talking about her and Donna swimming (laughs) with those two guys and was like, Oh my God, you know, because I was so young. I was like, and I, I kind of got scared. I was like, what if my mom comes up and like, catches me reading this? So I like, you know, was kind of like flipping through it and, and looking for my mom over my shoulders and everything. And I was like, there is no way I can ask my mom to buy this for me. So I didn't buy it. And then, you know, it just wasn't really in stores when I was old enough to buy it on my own. And then I just kind of forgot about it. So a few years ago, I actually bought a used copy and I think I read the whole book in like a day. And it's just, it's such a wonderful companion piece to the show. And it's hard to believe that she was only 22 years old when she wrote this. It's, I mean, it is, it is so brilliant. Like it just takes you inside the mind of Laura Palmer. And I think that every like, girl, woman, man, boy, like anyone, anyone who reads this book, I think could identify with Laura on some level. It's yeah. just, it's so good. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's a triple threat. <laughs> like she can write, she can direct. She also, you know, just creates other forms of art out, outside of, of writing and, and filmmaking, just a, a totally creative, unique individual. So yeah, her Instagram account is really fascinating. If you just scroll through, you're going to find some really cool visuals that she just has fun with, uh, like just like 
face paint and just <laughs> weird visuals, photography, other things. She just has so much fun creating cool writings and visual. And I'm sure I, I don't really listen to Instagram, but I'm sure there's some cool audio stuff in there too. Yeah. So uh, if you're not familiar with Jennifer Lynch, definitely check her out. Amazing, amazing talent. Yeah. I need to follow her Instagram a lot more. I'm not very good about social media lately, but yeah, you're not really good at like just Instagram in general, but I don't, Mindy, you're fired. I don't blame you. I mean, it's, it's a lot and it's a time suck, you know? Yeah. But I'm going to definitely add her to my list of people to keep an eye on for sure. Um, and agreed. I love the secret diary. I think she's awesome. Very good pick, Sharon. Thank you. All right. And who, who is next up on our list of, Honorees. Next up is I'm a huge uh, the woman that I'm a huge fangirl of, uh, Jennifer Kent. I'm kind of a fangirl of all of these ladies, but I after I saw the Babadook, I wanted to write her like a fan letter, <laughs> and I didn't, thank God. But um, she's a badass. Uh, and when writer director Jennifer Kent's 2018 film, which was the follow up to the Babadook, um, The Nightingale, premiered in Venice, it was. The only film submitted by a woman that year, but it was also considered to be the most violent. Uh, set in 1825, the film, to quote Kent herself, quote, explores the epidemic of rape around the world, unquote. The film is not an easy watch, and Kent's not really ever worried about anyone's delicate sensibilities, ever. Quote, I feel that we learn a lot by looking at the truth of things, even if that's a really bitter pill that we have to swallow. What I've learned is the difficult relationship we have in separating the act of rape as an act of sex as opposed to an act of violence. I'm in the latter camp. It's using a sex act to attempt to annihilate another human being. That's its aim, unquote. I think that I talked about the Nightingale in one of our movie roundups, but I don't remember which. It's a brilliant movie. It is not The Babadook. It is very different. But I, I do think it is one of those hard watches that might be a must watch for certain folks. But I love her and I wanted to put her on this list. So thank you, Jennifer Kent, for all you do. I still have not gotten around to watching The Nightingale yet because I know you said it was kind of a hard watch. But I did yeah. just rewatch The Babadook, which is also kind of a hard watch. It is kind of. Yeah, like in a totally different way. <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, for sure. So, um, yeah, but The Babadook is great. Uh, it's my second time watching it. I don't know if I ever need to see it again. <laughs> but um, there was a lot I forgot about it. So I'm glad that I was able to rewatch it and refresh my memory because it is a great movie. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to see what she does next. I know. Me too. I'm I'm psyched. So hopefully I don't and I don't think Venice freaked her out enough that she's not going to keep working. So <laughs> that's a good thing. OK, who's next, Sharon? All right. Well, next up on the list is Amy Holden Jones. And that name might not ring a bell, but I'm sure that most of you have seen her directorial debut film that has a huge cult following, Slumber Party Massacre, hey. which I actually um, wanted to rewatch this past week, but have not gotten around to doing so. But I think I actually might watch it tonight. Um, so Jones who, and Mindy, I'm going to thank you for sending me this article on oh. her. It was actually a really interesting read. Awesome. 
because I saw this movie and I I remember really, really liking Slumber Party Massacre and being completely surprised by it. So yeah, and this article like goes on to explain a lot about it. Awesome. Um, so, so Jones, who was an editor at the time, was only 27 when she made her directorial debut when she directed this movie. She actually declined an offer oh. to be an editor for Steven Spielberg's E.T. Wow. And like, who says no to Steven Spielberg? But yeah. like, clearly she made the right choice um, and she set <laughs> off to direct her own film that left its mark on horror history. And while most movies have only one final girl slumber party massacre actually has a few which is one of the things that sets this movie apart from other slasher flicks of the 80s and i mean even on to today yeah i'm trying to think of a movie off the top of my head that has multiple final girls i think spencer's doing a, a quick google search so maybe he can find some more but i'm sure this movie set the precedent so this comes from an article, the one I mentioned Mindy sent me, from ScreenRat.com. It's written by Marion Phillips. Quote, It is not a straightforward slasher, as Jones initially intended for it to parody the subgenre, but it is known as an undeniably integral contribution to it. Her ability to artfully craft a story of friendship and women's empowerment in a time of crisis was unique and nearly unheard of for the 1980s. When the film was conceived, Rita Mae Brown, a feminist author and activist, wrote the initial screenplay. While the studio ultimately altered it, (laughs) of course, uh, the film still contains the feminist elements that Brown originally wrote into Slumber Party Massacre. The article goes on to say, the film is inherently feminist as women are the powerhouses instead of only being victimized and work together to defeat the villain rather than needlessly suffering at the hands of a man. Furthermore, the screenplay was written with the intention of altering the slasher subgenre with a feminist overtone. Ultimately, Amy Holden Jones's Slumber Party Massacre is unlike any other slasher film of the 1980s as it pays overt attention to the power of womanhood and disrupts the trope of a singular final girl. End quote. Woo-woo! Jones went on to have a very prolific career well past Slumber Party Massacre. Uh, I'm sure you've seen a lot of her other movies. Uh, She wrote the screenplays for Mystic Pizza, Indecent Proposal, The Relic, and is currently one of the writers and creators of the TV show The Resident. So who knew? (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. So anyways, thank you for sending me that article, Mindy. I had no idea that this was such a like monumental film that, you know, just uh, kind of changed the whole slasher genre of the 80s. So very, very interesting. And check check this movie out if you haven't seen it or if you were ever like turned off by the title, you know, (laughs) I think it might surprise you. I think I want to rewatch it too like I really kind of want to watch it again now maybe I'll do that tonight as well I mean today is Valentine's Day so what better way to celebrate Valentine's Day (laughs) than watching romantic slaughter Woo! (laughs) there there is the word laughter in slaughter sorry Uh, (laughs) (laughs) can't have slaughter without the laughter Um, were you able to find any other movies Spencer that have multiple final girls so I wasn't going to look it up until you 
told the people that I was going <laughs> to look it up, but um, I did do a quick search. I didn't, I didn't see anything uh, that said that there was any other movies that had more than one. So this very well could be the only one, um, you know, of of any substance, really. All right, I'm going to do my own little search, but Mindy, please continue. Who who is our next woman in horror honoree? Okay, um, our next our next honoree. Uh, another favorite of mine, Lupita Nyong'o. Um, she's a wonder as an actress. If you listen to the show with any regularity, you've heard me say that many times. Um, <laughs> it took, but it took me seeing her in two specific horror movies that have me convinced uh, she's actually a goddess in human form or a Cylon. I'm not quite sure which yet, but either way, she seems to have an endless pool of talent ranging. All over the damn place, really. Uh, Sharon Spencer and I watched the movie, the zombie movie, um, Little Monsters, which is a zombie horror comedy. We watched it totally on a whim, and it paid off. Lupita stars as a kindergarten teacher taking her class on a field trip to a petting zoo the day a zombie outbreak happens. Um, And she is... I had no idea, but a dream horror heroine uh, taking out zombies left and right on her way to grab an EpiPen left on the school bus. Uh, not once batting an eye as she becomes drenched in zombie blood because it turns out girls got great aim for head smashing. Only a short scene or two later, Lupita's softly strums her ukulele and serenades the children with the Sesame Street song, I Don't Want to Live on the Moon, when I almost start crying. It's a beautiful scene. Um, And while I think this has become a known fact since um, she has the voice of it, the singing voice of an angel, it's incredible. Um, We've recommended Little Monsters before, but it's truly fantastic and worth a watch, if for no other reason than to see Lupita's performance. But Nothing quite prepared me for Us. Um, Coincidentally, I watched the movie Us, to be clear, (laughs) uh, for the first time maybe a week after seeing Little Monsters, and I was astounded by how utterly terrified I was of Lupita's red character, the doppelganger. Um, My favorite actors are the ones who can disappear into their roles completely, for better or worse, and... Oh, my God. To say that she can do that is an understatement. Every gesture, tick, or even look from Red terrified me, especially the voice. Now, I thought to myself, clearly some digital manipulation was used to create that crackly tone with maybe some editing to add the odd looking motions and ticks that Red displays. Turns out, nope. Lupita is just a great fucking actress who does her homework. Uh, She said that she based Red's voice on Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and specifically the spasmodic dysphonia, a condition that causes involuntary spasms in the muscles of the voice box or larynx, which in turn causes the voice to break and have a tight or strained strangled sound thought to be caused by abnormal functioning in the brain. A big thank you to hopkinsmedicine.org for that info. Vocal work like that is incredibly risky. If not done properly and safely, one could actually fuck up their voice for good. But as they say in Reservoir Dogs, Lupita is a fucking professional and her performance in Us is absolutely hers 100%. And damn if she doesn't absolutely nail it in my opinion uh lupita astounds me because her talents are seemingly endless 
and after being utterly terrified by Red in the movie Us, I can't wait to see what Lupita does in the future, both in the horror genre and otherwise. Um, and we have one last quick uh, honorable honorable mention. Words are hard. Uh, Nia DaCosta. Truthfully, I don't know much about Nia DaCosta just yet, though I am currently listening to the fictional podcast Ghost Tape, of which she is the co-creator. But I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for her and, of course, her highly anticipated Candyman reboot. Uh, but I wanted to include her here because the more I read about her, the more interested I become, especially after reading a Wired.com article on her, her work, and how horror can help foster a mutual understanding ac across racial divides uh, from Wired. Nia DaCosta is also hopeful for more Black voices that realize fully-fledged Black characters, meaning in the horror genre. She wants her filmmaking to foster empathy and understanding beyond superficial amusement with Black movies and music. In Candyman, that starts with the interplay of fears, spectral, and social. Quote, Understanding the horror of a ghost or a serial killer can be tangible for people who don't understand black trauma, black horror, black pain, she said, unquote. The hope in the end is that the audience walks out aware of the real pain that haunts their own communities and the ghosts on their side of the mirror, unquote. So I want to see Candyman like yesterday. I cannot wait for more of what DaCosta brings to the table in the coming years. And come on, Candyman, 2021 is your year. You're going to come out. Let's see it. Uh, before we move on to some of the movies that we're going to be talking about, I just want to say that I totally recommend watching Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror, which is available on Shudder. But it deals with a lot of the things that you just said in that quote from Nia DaCosta about um, black trauma, black horror, black pain. Um, it, it's just it's very informative and it explains the entire history of black horror in such a, a good, succinct way with tying it into actual history throughout the last century hmm. so i just highly recommend that and it's not just uh horror made by black people uh you know directors and actors but it's also how black people have been portrayed mm. in especially the older uh horror films mm -hmm. and it's it's a fascinating and really educational film that i strongly strongly recommend every single person watch it is awesome totally totally worth it absolutely Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Okay, Sharon, what's next? All right. Finally, we just wanted to give some shout outs to women in horror whose blogs, podcasts, and social media accounts we follow and also recommend that you do too. First up, we have Cody Loves Horror. You can follow her on Instagram at Cody Loves Horror and subscribe to her website. This comes directly from her website. CodyLovesHorror.com is a site dedicated to all things macabre and scary. Here you will find content related to the horror and true crime genres as well as the paranormal field. CodyLovesHorror.com regularly posts reviews of books, movies, and TV shows related to horror, true crime, and the paranormal field. A monthly What to Watch post keeps readers up to date with the latest in spooky entertainment. Um, I will say that there's a lot of things that go under my radar that I always 
go and check out her website to see what's coming out this month. Lots of great tips on TV shows, movies. I definitely recommend subscribing, checking her webpage out. Also, I want to give a shout out to Welcome to the Dark Side. You can follow her on Instagram at Welcome to the Dark Side and also subscribe to her website. She also has a podcast that's coming out soon, and she announced that she is partnering up with depopup.com and creating a small business clothing collection named Evil Eyes. Congrats to you on that. Uh, can't wait to check out your clothing collection and also listen to your podcast. Um, so this comes directly from her website. What is it that fuels you? For me, the love of horror. I love writing about my passions and you'll be able to get my horror movie gems, movie reviews, women in horror series, and more. I have always been a fan of horror films. I was introduced to horror when I was a little girl. My first horror movie was Evil Dead 1981. Uh, Come and take a look around. I hope you enjoy. Also, great recommendations. When things go under my radar, I Go to her website as well and check out what's new in the horror movie world and add it to my list. So yeah, if you don't want to do all the digging yourself <laughs> to find out what you should be watching, definitely check out Cody Loves Horror and Welcome to the Dark Side because they will do the work for you. <laughs> awesome. Make it much easier. And we would be remiss if we did not mention the following podcasts. Uh, First up, Who's There? A podcast about horror fans. Uh, Horror movies are often misunderstood, and so are the people who love them. Hosted by horror fan Allison, this is a podcast to talk to horror fans and see exactly why they love this genre the way they do. Uh, Allison has new episodes that come out every Thursday, and you can find her podcast on pretty much every podcast streaming service. Um, I know whenever we listen, uh, we get a lot of great movie recommendations, and it's kind of like eavesdropping on a couple of strangers talking about one of my favorite topics, horror movies. So it's a great listen. Um, Another great listen is Comedians with Ghost Stories, uh, hosted by Emily Winter. And she interviews comedians about their personal experiences with the supernatural. Uh, The show is now in its third season. Uh, Season three started on January 27th of this this year, 2021. Uh, Lots of creepy real life ghost stories, which I love hearing. I know Sharon does, too. Um, I love hearing people talk about their personal experiences. Since everyone she talks to is a comedian, each episode is funny and the guests are all great storytellers as well. So shout out to Allison and Emily as well. Yes. And so far, season three has been very entertaining, um, especially the Airbnb story. Oh, my God. (laughs) Creeps me the fuck out and now makes me like terrified to stay in an Airbnb, (laughs) especially especially ones that are in the woods. I think we also have to say that you have been guests on their shows and they have been uh, they were they they joined up with you for a trivia episode yes. as well. They have been, yes, Allison and Emily have been guests on our show, and we have been guests on their shows, and they are both awesome. And I love both their podcasts, so check them out. And um, awesome people as well, which is cool. Yes, we've not met them personally, but virtually, <laughs> in virtual <laughs> in virtual land, um, they seem awesome. And if we're ever able to travel again, uh, they both <laughs> live in New York, 
So I would love to actually meet them and make sure they're not ghosts. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, to wrap up this episode, I have a book announcement that I accidentally came across on Amazon and Ooh. was like, all right, I need to pre-order this immediately. Uh, it is called The Babysitter, My Summers with a Serial Killer. Out March 2nd of this year, it's written by Lisa Rodman and Jennifer Jordan. Ooh. It is a chilling true crime story, part memoir, part crime investigation, reminiscent of Anne Rule's classic, The Stranger Beside Me, about a little girl longing for love and how she found friendship with her charismatic babysitter, who was also a vicious serial killer. What? <laughs> Growing up on Cape Cod in the 1960s, Lisa Rodman was a lonely little girl. During the summers, while her mother worked days in a local motel and danced most nights at the Provincetown bars, her babysitter, the kind, handsome handyman at the motel where her mother worked, took her and her sister on adventures in his truck. He brought them popsicles, and together they visited his, quote, secret garden. In the Truro Woods. To Lisa, he was one of the very kind and understanding adults in her life. Everyone thought he was just a great guy. I mean, isn't that always the story? <laughs> right. <laughs> With serial killers. Um, but there was one thing she didn't know. Their babysitter was a serial killer. Some of his victims were buried in pieces right there in his garden in the woods. Though Tony Costa's gruesome case made screaming headlines in 1969 and beyond, Lisa never made the connection between her friendly babysitter and the infamous killer of numerous women, including four in Massachusetts, until decades later. Haunted by nightmares and horrified by what she learned, Lisa became obsessed with the case. Now, she and co-writer Jennifer Jordan reveal the chilling and unforgettable true story of a charming but brutal psychopath through the eyes of a young girl who once called him her friend. Wow. I have never heard of Tony Costa. No. I've never heard of the story. I am so curious about it. I was going to do a, a Google search and kind of like familiarize myself with him, but I think I'm just going to wait for the book so I can hear it through her words. Yeah. Um, a little bit about the authors. Lisa Rodman attended the University of Massachusetts Amherst and received her Bachelor of Arts with a concentration in creative writing from Vermont College. In 2005, she began researching the story of Tony Costa when she realized her personal connection to the infamous Cape Cod killer. She had gathered thousands of documents, testimonials, and interviews, perhaps more than any other investigator or journalist who has worked on this case. The Babysitter is her first book. And Jennifer Jordan is an award-winning author, filmmaker, and screenwriter with decades of experience as a news anchor and investigative journalist. She has worked for NPR and PBS, and her work also appeared in a variety of national and international newspapers and magazines. She has directed and produced several documentaries, including 3,000 Cups of Tea, which revealed the flawed 60-minute report on renowned philanthropist Greg Mortensen, in addition to her own books, Savage Summit, and Last Man on the Mountain, she has ghostwritten to others. The Babysitter is her fifth book. Sounds like 
amazing writers, amazing story. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. Cannot wait for this to come out. And it'll only be out in a few more days. Yeah. After this episode airs. Yeah. Wow. I feel like I've heard about this book, but not the details. But I absolutely... I, it might just it just so happens I just got an Amazon gift card like just today. So isn't that convenient? I think I'm gonna <laughs> put it on the list, put it on the list. <laughs> Buy me a copy too. Hey. <laughs> um, really how, quick how much you got on that gift card? <laughs> Enough for me. Enough for two books. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well. Thank you all for listening to us. As always, you can write us at horror at gmail.com with anything you want to share with us, whether it's ghost stories, true crime stories, creepy stories, the story about how your babysitter was a serial killer. <laughs> um, you can tell us who your favorite women in horror are, whether it's an actress, director, writer, or character from a film or a television show. Um, tell us what your favorite Christopher Pike book is, um, because maybe I'll read a few more. The Minute Club comes out. I would, I wouldn't mind rereading those. Yeah, right. That'd be fun, actually. Please subscribe to us and rate and review us. It helps us get more exposure. Uh, we have some fun interviews coming up. So look out for those episodes. We also have a fun horror movie Oscar themed episode that we're it's going to be coming up that will be interactive and we need you guys to vote. So be on the lookout for where to cast your votes. Uh, that's going to be super fun. We're kind of excited about this one. Um, and if you are able, please subscribe to our Patreon. You will get some cool shit sent to you. Maybe you see some exclusive posts or exclusive content. Get early access to episodes. Lots of fun stuff. As always, please be kind to each other and stay safe out there. I mean, I almost fell like twice in Chicago just walking in the snow. So like literally be safe out there. But then also try and please wear your masks and everybody try and stay healthy and be safe and kind to each other. And as always, thanks, thanks for, for getting, getting creepy, creepy with us. Sharon, you want a beer? Uh, oh, my God.